Jehovah is the name of our God. Just to use the word God isn't good enough because that's just a title of deity, a supernatural being. But the Bible identifies the name of our God as Jehovah. And so we sang to him about him. If you were wondering about some of the peculiar words in that song, it's because it's taken from Psalm 148. So we have sung at least two psalms today, if you were paying attention. Brother Aaron, Psalm 36, and that Psalm 148 that we just sang in that version of it. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. We can talk about the Lord Jesus Christ all we want to. We can sing about Him. We can speak of Him being full of grace and truth. We can claim the grace and declare the truth. But if we don't have the marriages that we should have, then we've denied Him in works. And we want our marriages to be the wonderful things that God intended them to be. Glorifying Him, adorning the gospel, encouraging our children, closing the mouths of adversaries, and giving us the peace and pleasure and profit that they were designed to give us. Luke chapter 12. There is danger in coming to church. I want to remind you of some things that I shared in the preparatory email yesterday. Here's the danger. Luke chapter 12, verse 47. That servant, which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 48, But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. This is just a simple, basic, logical equation that when you have been taught more and have a greater privilege, the Lord and men expect more from you. Each of your spouses sitting here today should assume, expect, and they should get a perfect spouse because you've heard too much. And so they expect you To be perfect. Does it say that? It says that. To whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. And so our spouses should expect more from us than a couple that hasn't heard as much as we have heard. The warning here is that when we come into church and we hear things that we wouldn't hear if we didn't come, by coming and hearing It puts upon us the burden of responsibility to put those things into practice. And if we don't do it, according to verse 47, we'll be beaten with many stripes. But if we didn't come to church and we didn't do it, we'll be beaten with few stripes because we're not going against knowledge that we have been given. So there's danger in coming to church in a proper sense of those words. Look at Matthew 21 with me. Matthew chapter 21 Does anyone else have an anniversary coming up before next Sunday? I thought the letter that we had read to us was about as good preparatory material as uh, we can give, short of the Bible itself. It should stir us up. All of our marriages should stir each other up. There's various ways in which we can provoke each other to love and to good works, and one is by example. So let's all show each other what a real loving marriage is. Matthew chapter 21, here's a warning again from the Lord Jesus. Verse 28, But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. And went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father? Jesus asks a question. They say unto him, the first, meaning the first son. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, 
that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. The publicans were the taxpayers working for the Roman government. The harlots were the prostitutes working the streets of the cities of Israel. Those two categories of people believed on Jesus Christ before the scribes and the Pharisees that could quote the scriptures and copied them every day for a living. And here we are. We've heard about the glory of God in the first service. We've heard about the Word being made flesh and dwelling among us and being our Savior, full of grace and truth. No matter what we think, no matter what we say, no matter what we preach, no matter what we hear, if we don't have good marriages based on the Word of God, then we're denying the very Savior we're claiming to love. Lord, help us. God, nor we, care about how comfortable you are in your marriage, the way you're doing things. That is no measure of truth. We don't care, and God doesn't care how established you are in the way you do things, the habits that you've developed with your spouse, or the level of discouragement that you have that you don't think it can be any better. God doesn't measure things by those criteria. He measures things by His Word. And so don't let those keep you from being the spouse that you should be based on the Bible. The Bible is as relevant for today as ever. It's more relevant in some ways than ever because our nation is changing so much. God created the man. God created the woman. God created love, marriage, sex, and childbirth. God created, God told us how to best experience it, and we ought to follow His rules. A changing world makes the Bible seem more and more extreme. And I want you to think about that in the days to come. Our message isn't going to get more extreme. Our message is going to be, thus saith the Lord, like it's always been. We're not going to keep some verses back. We're going to preach the whole counsel of God. But as the world around us changes, the Bible position, a Bible marriage, a Bible position on marriage, love, sex, and so forth, will seem more and more extreme. If you compare us to the newspaper, if you compare us, nobody reads the newspaper anymore. If you compare us to Time Magazine, nobody reads the magazine anymore. If you compare us to internet sites that like to share the news of what's going on in our country and of what is now popular, we're going to look extreme, but we're not the ones that changed. The generations before us, this nation has been a Bible-believing and Bible-practicing nation in many respects. They had marriages like I'm teaching. But the world's changing, and so it makes us look extreme. That can't slow us down. That can't keep us from obeying the Word of God in everything that it says. I hope that you will read the Song of Solomon this week. Along with whatever you read, read the Song of Solomon. Eight short chapters. They're easy to read. It's in the Bible. It's inspired by God. It's a love letter. It's a love song. It goes from the man speaking to the woman speaking to a chorus speaking. Back and forth it goes. And it should teach you two things. First, it should teach you what a man and a woman truly in love talk like, act like toward each other. Second of all, it does imply and teach and indicate the relationship between Jesus Christ and His church because of what we're told in the New Testament about the example of a marriage reflecting Jesus Christ's relationship with His church. But I'd like you to read the Song of Solomon. It's romantic. It's sexual. It's anatomical. It's creative. It's hot. As they like to say, read it. It's God's word. It's as true as John 114. Psalm 119, 128. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. Do we? Do you? I esteem God. I esteem. I value and I exalt all your precepts all your commandments about every part of life to be right. And I hate every false way. Instead of us applying that out there 
to Mormons or to others, to Muslims. Let's apply it to ourselves. What are God's precepts about marriage? We esteem them to be right. And we hate every false way. And what is a false way? Any way of doing things different from the Bible. God knows more about love than all men combined. When men start singing about love, like Elton John and Whitney Houston for two examples, do you know what love they sing about? Self-love. Selfishness. Narcissism. Incredible. That's the last person we need to love more. The last person we need to love more is ourselves. We need to love others as Jesus taught. Jesus taught us to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. He already knows we love ourselves well. We should learn to love other people with the same passion and care that we love ourselves. Whatever God has told us to do, we should do it. And count every other way the wrong way to have a marriage. Look at Luke chapter 9. I know I'm just introducing my subject and I know I'm burning valuable time, but I am approaching this series on marriage differently than I have in the past and I have a different purpose. And as long as you go home convicted, I'm not going to worry so much about giving you the details of how to be a great spouse because I believe you already know them or most of them. And if men would talk more about marriage and women would talk more about marriage, they could pick up on the rest of them. There's plenty of books that have been published that, that deal with more details. I want us to be convicted. Because like I said, you, all, you got a spouse, so that means you know what to do. If your spouse were to die, you'd get another one. You know what to do. So I just want to convict you to go home with the one you've got. And as the song says, put out by the world, love the one you're with. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, the Lord Jesus said this about discipleship. Now this morning, I think most of you would have said, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. Well, here's what the disciples of Jesus should do. Jesus said to them all in verse 23, If any man will come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Jesus in verse 23 teaches that if you're going to follow him and be his disciple, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, then you need to deny yourself. That means you have to put down your selfish feelings of wanting to do things your way and do them Christ's way. It means you have to deny your pleasures in order to give someone else pleasure. It means you take up your cross daily. Now a cross was the instrument of torture and death of the Roman government. And it says take up our cross, which means we, we kill our, we kill certain parts of ourselves each day to love others. We get over ourselves by crucifying ourselves to care about others and especially our spouses. And that's how we follow Christ according to verse 23. Verse 24 says that if we do it that way, if we'll lose our life by crucifying certain things we want, by denying ourselves in things that we desire and give them to someone else for Christ's sake, we'll find our life, meaning we'll be the happiest The happiest way to live is to live for the Lord and other people. The the more selfish and the more introverted we are, the more we look into ourselves and worry and think about ourselves, the unhappier we are. People in prison, and the studies have been done, criminals in prison have the highest measures of self-love and self-esteem. That's why they're there. They won't submit to the rules of anyone else because all they care about is themselves. We want to have low self-esteem, low self-love, and higher other esteem, and higher other love, which is what the Bible teaches throughout. And we benefit by doing it God's way. This is our portion on earth, a marriage. Look at Amos chapter 3, and let's get started in the first 
rule that we can cover today. Amos chapter 3. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. It's there in the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament. Amos chapter 3. This rule is, I've entitled it, Care Enough to Confront. Love your spouse and care about your marriage enough to confront. And that varies differently from a husband to a wife. Amos chapter 3 and verse 2. Verse 3 is what I want. Amos 3, 3. Can two walk together? Can a husband and a wife walk together and have a good marriage? What's the rest of the sentence and question say? Except they be agreed. So we need to come to agreement. We need to think the same way, hold the same position in our marriages by being in agreement because that's what helps two people walk together. Otherwise, you become two independent parties that have the same address and mailbox and you may have the same last name and you may even have the same operating account for checking, but you're just partners. Instead of really walking together and loving each other, thinking the same way, speaking the same thing, holding the same positions. So the text tells us our rule. Can two walk together except they be agreed? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. They can't. We want to be agreed about the gospel. We want to be agreed about God. We want to be agreed in agreement about our spouse. We want to be in agreement. And how does it take to become in agreement with a spouse? Just getting married? Going to work? No, those things don't cut it. We gotta communicate. You've gotta communicate with your spouse. You've gotta compromise on some things, which is back to denying yourself and taking up your cross in order to come into agreement. Because to agree with another person means you have to confront them. You're holding this position, I'm holding this position, and that's not making for a very happy marriage right now. How can we get into agreement on this subject? To walk together better. So that we're in full agreement. Many of you have said, some of you, I won't say many, but some of you have said over the years, listening to Sherry at women's meetings is like listening to Jonathan on Sunday, and I hope so, and I hope that you would hope so. Because we're in total agreement. Total agreement. We've talked about these things for over 40 years, some of them. And to walk together and to be happy together is to be in agreement. And you, you all know that have been married. And you children that have been children of parents that weren't in agreement, you saw the division in the house and you knew that one parent was closer to your side than the other parent because they were different. We don't want those kind of differences. Because we can't walk together and be the kind of couple and marriage that the Lord wants. Whatever the Bible says, those are the rules and neither spouse can overthrow them. So all those things are settled. That's why I read Psalm 119, 128. If it's a Bible rule, that's settled. That's what we do. Because it's the Bible. Now if it's matters of liberty, that is the choices that God gives a couple, the husband makes that decision. That's why he is said to rule. That's why she is said to obey him. That's why the Bible teaches that a wife should submit to her husband. Those words of submission, obedience, and rule are there in the things that God hasn't specified. Now a wise man will realize there are times where my wife wants to do something and I don't think it's the greatest thing in the world, but I'm going to let her have her liberty in that area. And that's fine. But we're still agreed. Because he's agreed to let you do something that you have wanted to do that he doesn't really personally prefer. Good communication is a key. You've got to talk about everything. If you get too busy in your lives or you build habits where you know you get up and you have breakfast and you go to work and you come home and there's the yard to do and there's the kids to take care of, you fall into bed, you go to sleep, and I don't care what you do before you go to sleep, that isn't the issue right now. You haven't really talked. Because you can do what you do before you go to sleep without talking. You, did, you, did you know that there's a whole industry and a profession that does what you do before you go to sleep and they don't talk? There's got to be communication. Right. 
If you care for God's rules in your marriage, then confront your spouse to change things. You have a marriage covenant where you agreed to do certain things, and it should cover most of your marriage in this church. The way you go about this, caring enough to confront, is drastically different between the husband and the wife. Each spouse should consider when you're going to confront each spouse, the husband and the wife, should consider the other spheres of authority, and that will help direct you as to how you go about in the confrontation. All of you men on a job, all of you men with customers, know how you would like to be confronted. Graciously, gently, respectfully, kindly. And so we should practice that. The wife knows how she wants her children to confront her any women in here that like that? Then they should be willing to confront their husbands the same way. I have found over the decades in matters of authority to think about the other spheres. We get too emotionally involved. When we're trying to think about a sphere of authority and a relationship that we're in, we are emotionally involved. Therefore, remove yourself and apply it to another sphere of authority. If you're dealing in marriage, think about the parent-child relationship or think about the employer-employee relationship and it will help you dictate how you should conduct yourself in the one at hand. If you just stay there and get worked up about whatever you want to confront your spouse about, it won't come off the right way. The husband is at all times the CRM or the MCR. Conflict Resolution Manager. A husband, by his job, given to him by God, is to resolve all conflicts. There should be perfect peace in a marriage. If there isn't, it is the husband's ultimate fault and responsibility. He should make sure there is peace. Conflict comes up in every marriage. It needs to be resolved. Who is going to resolve it? The husband should lead the way. It is his responsibility to lead, to manage, or rule the marriage to be what it should be. So that the wife is happy, the wife is protected, the children are obedient, and the home is a tranquil domestic place. Who's going to do that? A proper, scriptural, Christ-following husband. He'll do it that way. As manager, he cannot allow a situation to fester or simmer. You know, when there's a difference and it's not being dealt with, everything is affected. You're in bed together, and you don't even like to be in bed with the other person because there's a difference. You know what it's like on the job that way, when you know your boss is unhappy, but he won't say anything. And so it's the husband's responsibility to get rid of that conflict and not allow it to fester. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. The Bible says, no bitterness. The Bible says, no grudges. Those things ought to be settled every day. Life can be wonderful if we would just do it the Lord's way. What keeps me from doing it the Lord's way? Selfishness, self-esteem, self-love, pride, and laziness, and I hate confrontation because I love peace. So all those things work together. I'll just go in and work another few hours. I said that for all of you. We go hide instead of dealing with things as we should as a man. A man should identify his wife's faults and correct them by the Bible and by their marriage covenant. A man should confess his own faults and correct them. It's wisdom, not weakness. It's not weakness to admit a fault. It's wisdom. Your wife will love you more. To take your wife and to sit her down, there is no television on. No, no marriage is going to get good with the television on. It's just going to be a piece of junk um, for the rest of their lives if you run the television in your house. But to sit down with your spouse, no distractions, no children, no television. You're not in bed. You're not exhausted. There's not something that needs to be done right then. Take her by the hands. Look her in the eye. Have your Bible out. Have your marriage covenant out. And say, wife, we're not doing this right. 
we're not pleasing the Lord. You know it. I know it. If you don't know it, I'm telling you to know it. We're not pleasing the Lord right now. We need to make some changes. Let me get started. The husband's talking. Let me get started. You know, I'm doing this wrong. I'm doing that wrong. It's contrary to the Bible. Here's the verse. It's contrary to our marriage covenant. Here's the point. I've been a bad husband recently in these areas. I'm sorry. I have confessed it to God, and I will to God right now before you. Now, wife, you've been doing this wrong and that wrong yourself. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what our marriage covenant says. Will you submit to the Word of God and our marriage covenant that we made before witnesses, Almighty God and the elect and holy angels, and be the wife that you should be in this marriage? Will you join me in having a Christian, God-honoring, Bible-following marriage? Will you join me? Let's do this together. Let's have a great marriage. The Bible way. If you've ever been a manager of employees and you had to call them into your office to tell them they had done something wrong, every one of you knows the gut-churning scenario that I just described. But it's a loving scenario. If you're, even if you're the employee, to be called in by an employer and to have it laid out to you what you did wrong, that the employer is excited about having you on the staff, that there's a good future for you, you just need to make some changes in these couple of areas, that's just... That is peaceful. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for bosses like that. Every husband needs to be that way. He's the manager of conflict resolution. He needs to manage the correction of any situation that comes up until all is peaceful and loving. This little meeting that we had, any good husband can look in his wife's eyes or listen to what she says or see her body language, and know whether he has won the day yet or not. And until he has won the day, they stay. Are you with me? On, they stay. We, get, we resolve the matter. We get it over. Completely over. When you had two little children that were your children, they're fighting with each other, and you want to stop fighting in your home, and you've disciplined them, what do you likely ask them to do after you're done disciplining them? My father used to do it to me. Hug your brother. What's the last thing in the world I want to do right then? <laughs> Is hug my brother. But we hug. And you know what dissipates. There's one great thing about being a child. Do you know the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 that children do not hold malice? I wish that we could all be children. Did Paul ever say that? Right. I wish you could all be children in malice, but in understanding to be men. Right. Yes, he did. If we could all be children in our marriage, wouldn't that be great? No malice, no grudge, no bitterness. Just get over it all the way until it's grudge and bitterness are at level zero. So you stay there, wife. I've just confessed to you what I'm doing wrong in the marriage. I'm identifying what you're doing wrong in the marriage. Let's do it God's way. If we don't do this, and if you don't do this, little things simmer, they fester, they turn into bitterness, and they pull two people apart, and you will never be walking together in agreement like you should be. This is easy, and it's hard. We can do it. Right. Lovingly. Let the man start off first. If your boss called you into his office and said, I have been a poor manager of your department and the things that have been expected of you, and here's where I've been wrong on three points, then he tells you that you've been wrong in a couple, how many of you would have a problem saying, I'll never do that again. Thank you very much for having this meeting with me. And every wife should respond that way when her husband stirs up the courage to be a man and to sit down and tell you to your face that you're doing something wrong. But a wise man will tell her what he's doing wrong first. Because usually there's two parties in the problem. This can be done. This has been taught before at couples retreats, but I have a large group here. I want our children growing up to know that there is a way to handle differences in a marriage so that two people can walk together in perfect agreement. Sherry and I know exactly when we are off 1%.
1%. I'm a little more melancholy than she is. It drives me crazy. 1% drives me crazy. What's my natural tendency? I've taught her for 42 years. When's she going to come and apologize to me? My natural tendency. So I wait. She might not come to me ever. So somebody's got to get it over with. Because look who's getting punished the most. I am. How many times do you think she has said to me, I won't go with you to follow the Lord and have a Christian marriage? I will say on behalf of 80% of the women sitting in this audience right now that I know that they're as good as my wife in that matter. And if a husband sat down and told them like I just described, they would say, I'll go with you and follow you anywhere to follow the Lord and have a Christian marriage. The husband needs to follow up on any changes made and lead his wife to marital perfection, just like he's leading himself. The worst habit you can get into in a marriage is letting things go. Maybe if I just, maybe if I just ignore it, it'll get better. <laughs> Not usually. Not usually. Even if that little tiny thing is forgotten and it goes over into this corner of the garage, I still think of hitting the garage door opener and telling me about snow shovels. Um, a long time ago, that little thing kind of disappears because we have so many things coming up in our lives. But if you've let one little thing go that you haven't dealt with properly, another little thing can be added to it very easily. It's like when you've started an exercise program, if you miss one day, how is it easier or harder to miss the next day? Much easier. If you let something go, it's much easier to let the next one go, and pretty soon you're in a habit of letting little things go And then when you do get into a conflict, what comes rushing up in your mind and out of their mouth? Possibly. Hopefully that doesn't happen in our marriages. Any woman that opens her mouth like that isn't going to heaven. When you take those little things and let them accumulate, and you don't deal with them, then it comes rushing up because they're still there. Nothing from the past should ever be brought up Forgive and forget. Forgive and forget. Are you glad that there's someone else that does that to you? The Lord! Do you know what He could be beating with me with every day of my life? Do you know what He could be reminding me of every day of my life? I love forgiving and forgetting. You need to love it with me. You need to help me do it more. Lord, help us all to do it better. This is a delicate job. It involves love and authority in the appropriate balance and the application of wisdom. You come on too strong, you'll hurt her, break her, offend her. You'll look like a hypocrite because she knows that you've got things in your life. It's got to be done delicately, but but it can be done. And I want to encourage all the men here, the, the, the vast majority of the men, you've got wives that will handle it very well. Because they fear God and they want to have a marriage that's based on the Bible and pleases Christ and pleases their husband. The buck stops with the man. Marital problems are his fault, either through abuse or neglect. One or the other or both. The buck stops with the man. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Reconcile before sleep. For those of you that have been married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For these that have been married, it's hard for them to even imagine it. But you can be in bed with the woman of your desires. The woman that you picked. The woman that you wanted to be with for the rest of your life. The woman that every night before you got to marry her, you were thinking about being in bed with her. You're in bed with her now. And you don't want to touch her. And she doesn't want to touch you. And the two of you are lying there waiting for the other to roll over towards you and say they're sorry. And instead, you roll away and face the wall. I know I say things plainly. And the only way I can say it is because you know that it must have happened sometime in my 42 years. Oh, yes. She's my wife. She ought to know exactly what I'm thinking. She ought to roll over and say she's sorry. Well, I'll show her. You know, and I, it's just wicked. It's plain. Listen, these, these, scenes, that I've been, these scenes that I've been in are the most, they're, they're incredible to me about the nature of sin. 
You know, before I had her, I couldn't think about anything than being in that situation. That was going to be the best situation in, in the whole universe. Be in bed with Sherry. Well, there we are. <laughs> someone, someone has to be the manager of conflict resolution. And if the wife has to do it, it breaks down the marriage the way that it's supposed to be. She should, have to do, she should only do it very seldom, and it's very different, and it's very, done very carefully. The man's got to reach over and take his wife and roll up on his side and play with her hair and tell her that he's sorry, that he's messed up again as a husband. He's a, he's a fool. He's an ass. He's a Judas. You know, whatever, whatever makes you feel better. Sometimes it's a long string of uh, words. Just, you know, and play with her hair and say, will you please forgive me? I've been wrong. Of course I'll forgive you. Well, good, because I have a couple things to say to you. You know, and, but, it, it, but you know, by that, time, by that time, hopefully you're feeling very merciful. I'm sorry that we have to do this from time to time. But you're a great wife. If the wife sees a problem in the marriage, she needs to be very discreet and humble. It is not her job to correct her husband for every fault he has or mistake he makes. Let's jerk out of marriage and go to the workplace. Do you go tell your boss's boss every time he wears a tie that you don't like? Let me ask it again. Do you go tell your boss's boss when you're on the job, women, when you're, if and when you ever worked on a job, do you go tell your boss's boss when he wears a tie that you don't like? Thank you. That's how you should think about your husband unless he's asked you to pick ties for him because he's colorblind. If he's colorblind and hasn't asked you, you still don't have the liberty. Matters of liberty, no matter how much you may dislike his position on a liberty, are his to choose. God wanted to establish this so seriously that in Numbers chapter 30, he gave a whole chapter about a husband or a father for a girl or woman still living at home to overrule her free will offerings. If she made a vow to the Lord... A husband or a father could disannul a vow to God. That, by, that is so powerful and weighty. A vow to God. No, you may not. God did not hold him responsible for doing anything wrong, and God held her responsible to obey that male authority in her life, whether father or husband. She should be very meek and very patient using Bible wisdom. What is the Bible wisdom about confronting a person? Psalm 15 and verse 1 puts it this way. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. So your husband is irritated with you. So you let go with fighting words? You let go with critical words? Are you kidding me? Where did you grow up? What vegetable patch did you come from? No! Look what it says. And this is for men. Proverbs is written for men. A soft answer turneth away wrath. The way that you end a conflict is to use soft and gentle answers. But grievous words stir up anger. You get more of it. Don't do that. When the policeman comes to your door after he's caught you at 60 and a 45, which of your responses is it? A. I think you guys are lazy and don't do anything for our county. B, yes, sir. Is there a problem, sir? You all know what to do. You know what? The familiarity of marriage kind of just break, starts breaking that down, and it shouldn't break it down because God said to keep it up. And that is that the husband's in charge and the wife should be reverent toward him. 15.1 is the way that a wife should go about doing it, a soft answer turneth away wrath. Look at 25, 15. Proverbs is full of so much relational wisdom. The wisdom for better relationships. 25, 15. By long forbearing is a prince persuaded. Do you know what forbearing is? Putting up with what they're doing. By long forbearing. Forbearing is putting up with what they're doing without the word long. By long forbearing is a prince persuaded. And a soft tongue breaketh the bone. When your wife 
says something very gently to you and you are a good husband to where your ears are tuned to some gentle thing she says to you that could be better in the marriage or she writes it to you in very gentle terms, that should be loud. It should, oh, she got me. It breaks the bone. But a man better be listening for it. Although that should, it should happen, conflict should be resolved this way seldom. It should usually be the husband leading in the matter. Look at 16, 14, same book. I just want to hit this one hard. We, we do it as men, and you should do it on the job. You should do it with customers. You should do it with brothers in the church. 16, 14, the wrath of a king is as messengers of death. But a wise man will pacify it. I mean, that's a little higher than your boss's boss when a king is angry at you. But even when a king is angry at you, do you know what you ought to be aiming for? Pacify it. Pacify that anger. And women should want to pacify the anger of their husband if something has happened to where he is upset. A wife cannot blow off when she feels like it any more than a corporal can blow off to a general. What happens in a real army when a corporal blows off to a general? Now, for the moment, I'm talking about a real army being something like the Russian or the German army of World War II. You don't blow off. You salute. If he says jump, you say how high, sir, and salute. A wife should wait for an opportunity that is in season. Who is supposed to talk whether it's in season or out of season? A minister. And a husband can do that, but he should do it wisely. But a wife should wait for an opportunity when it's in season to respectfully, submissively state her case. I have suggested many times that writing may be wise. Writing takes longer than you blowing off because of emotion. You know, when you blow off, it's because you've never learned to rule your spirit, you have a volatile spirit, and you give way to your spirit through words. And so you blow off. But if you had to write, to sit down and write to your husband, I believe you would choose gentler words. You would have time for some of the emotion to dissipate. It's wise on that grounds. It's wise in the fact that there isn't a face-to-face confrontation. Face-to-face confrontation with one under authority, telling the one in authority that they're wrong, is difficult to manage. There's time to compose. You will think through and say the right things. You'll have a copy of what you've said if you say something to your husband in writing. It will give him time if it's in his lunch pail or he gets a text at work. He will have time to look at it and think about it. His first reaction is going to be, who does she think she is? That's, part, that's going to be partly there, but it's going to dissipate. The more he thinks about it, and you know you want to do it in the morning sometimes so that he has like five or six hours before he gets home. And by the time he gets home, he has thought through it. And I'm all you husbands, if your wife gently, respectfully, humbly brings the word of God and her conscience and her love for you and her desire for your marriage to be great to you in a text, you had better handle that like a godly man. And that would be to thank God as soon as you read it. Lord, I thank you. For giving me an Abigail, for giving me a Hannah, for giving me a Lois and a Eunice. Thank you, Lord, for such a great wife. And then preparing yourself to text her back and tell her, You're right, I'm wrong. You're wise, I'm foolish. You're smart, I'm stupid. You're good, just sharing something with you. I want to make it clear. Um, Lord, bless us. Did you know that we have an extensive commentary and an extensive document about how Abigail used great wisdom to handle two angry men, David and her husband Nabal? It's all of 1 Samuel chapter 25. We have extensive articles, documents explaining that. A wise man knows that a godly wife can give him a different perspective and assist him, so he will listen to her. Sometimes he'll ask, what do you think? 
because he knows that she has a different perspective. She has a different mindset, a different background of experience before she met you. She has female intuition, whatever, whatever that is. You know, I ask Sherry. I like to ask Sherry. What do you think? Do you think I'm being too hard? Do you think I'm being too gentle? She's generally harder than I am, so I'm not going to run too wrong by asking her. And a good man's going to do that. A wise man's going to do that. Wise couples will use what I call the rule of ten to adjust or modify what they hear from each other, especially when it's heated. If one or both spouses haven't done this the way that it was just described, and you're hot, and you have a verbal, choleric-type wife, you've got to divide by ten what she says because she doesn't know what she's saying. And if you've got a choleric, verbal husband who's blasting off, divide by ten, poor women, because he doesn't know what he's saying, and if I was to show up, he wouldn't say it the way that he's saying it. And I'm nothing. But they're just blowing off. But then, the rule of ten also says, if you've got a meek and quiet little husband, and he says something, multiply it by ten. If you have a meek and quiet little wife that hardly ever confronts you, and she says something or brings something to your attention, multiply it by ten. It's just a simple little rule. Temperaments vary. Uh, verbal, Verbal ability varies. The amount of emotion varies. And you should deal with it wisely. Wise men can correct this tendency. If you're prone to blasting off at your spouse, I'm especially talking to husbands right at the moment, get over it. Learn the gentleness and meekness of Christ. When I say those words, the gentleness and meekness of Christ, are any of you thinking weakness? But could the Lord Jesus be gentle and meek and have the greatest authority in the universe? Was he able to take apart any Pharisee, scribe, Levite, or Sadducee verbally? But he didn't do that with everyone. He only did it when they had proved that's the way they should be addressed. How can two walk together except they be agreed? The point that I'm trying to make here is not agreement on the doctrines of the Greenville Church. I hope that's already in place. I'm talking about those little differences that pop up between husbands and wives just about every day that need to be dealt with wisely. The husband is at all times the manager of conflict resolution. He should settle it, and he should settle it till it's finished. He should settle it to the satisfaction of both. He should settle it in a godly way, and he should follow up on it to make sure it stays settled. And he should get the marriage back to where there is zero conflict. Marriage, when it's zero, is fabulous. Marriage with even 1% hurts and is painful. And it's every man's responsibility to take care of that. Give me two more, uh, five more minutes. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, and I I need uh, four ushers. Young people, I'm thankful that you recently had a retreat about charity, about love. And I want to take your great theme that you picked and apply it to marriage and send you home. And if your parents disappear for a couple of hours this afternoon, you can be praying for them that your father has taken your mother by the hands and they are settling any little differences between them and it's going to be better in your home going forward. Or, I hope that it doesn't have to happen in any house because you're all perfect husbands and wives. Even 1% hurts. Even 1% displeases the Lord. Even 1% hinders praying because we know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. I'll use me. I know it's wrong. And I just have to get over myself enough to go take care of it. And then we can come to the Lord. Do you know what it says in Matthew chapter 5? If you know that you've offended another person, leave your gift. Do you know what we've done today? We've come into this house, Brother Jim, we've got so excited about the glory of God, the thrice holy God of Isaiah chapter 6. We sang number 6 in the Burgundy hymnal for you, brother. 
So we came together, we get all excited about Jesus, but the Bible tells us that if we have a difference with a brother, especially our spouse, that's the most personal relationship. If we have a difference, we should take care of that, then come and offer our gift. He does not want our worship when we have a difference between us. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. I'm in 1 Corinthians 13, which is where you ought to be, please. The first three verses tell us what we are, though we, though we love Christ, and though we can speak with the tongues of angels, and though we have the all ministerial revelatory gifts ever given to the church, and though we sell all we have to give to the poor, and we offer ourselves to be burned, if we don't know how to love others, Here's what we are. The first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, which is love, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You're just an irritating noise. I'm just an irritating noise. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I can remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned as a martyr, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Do you understand the severe condemnation in these three verses about not having love toward others? And who's the one person that we ought to have the most love toward? Those of us that are married? Our spouse. One sentence. This is how God writes. One sentence on the definition of love. Verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. One sentence, 15 phrases, defining love. I have given you a little page to think about in private devotions or with your spouse of how those 15 phrases can be applied to your marriage so that you can practice the love that God expects us to show our spouses and all other men and women, or or the greatest effort that we make to serve Him, believe on Him, learn the truth, apply the truth, worship together, irritating noise, no profit, and you're nothing and I'm nothing. May the Lord bless us to love our spouses as we should. Stand with me, please. And let's go serve the Lord.